The book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 8, and we pick things up in verse 10. Sunday night through the Bible, Genesis to Revelation. If you're with us tonight and you don't have a Bible, men are coming up the aisles with Bibles right now, and you get their attention, they'll get a Bible into your hands this evening. Mark to the place where we are studying this evening, and if you don't own a Bible, we want you to own a Bible. Make that Bible a gift from the Lord to you today. With the book of Ecclesiastes, we continue with uh, Solomon as he uh, continues his search in an effort to find a meaning and purpose in life independent of God. Under the sun is how he puts it, the S-U-N in the context of creation. I'm going to try and find meaning and purpose in life independent of God in the context of creation. His conclusion is that as a result of his attempt uh, to find that meaning and purpose independent of God, he said, my search has been empty and frustrating. All of life is empty and frustrating apart from the relationship with God that we've been created for. And I think many of us in this room can speak to the fact that we came to know the Lord in our lives, not because we felt a compelling need to be forgiven of our sins or something like that. If I had been smarter, I would have come to God out of an urgency for the forgiveness that my sin needed. But I know I came to know the Lord because I couldn't figure anything out. Nothing made sense apart from God. I couldn't make sense of this world, and I needed someone to save me from myself. And so Solomon tries this search, his search, an honest one to be sure, and every honest search uh, for the truth of life and the meaning of life will always bring that person to the foot of the cross and face-to-face with Jesus. And then it's a matter of whether that person is willing to put their faith in Christ to begin the life that each of us have been created for. Well, in chapter 7 of the book of Ecclesiastes, after Solomon looks everywhere and all he finds are things that increase his frustration and his emptiness um, related to life, he decides and he does what everybody does that says, all right, I'm going to make sense of life independent of God. I don't want anything to do with his word or his philosophy on life. And if I reject his philosophy uh, on life, then I'm forced to develop my own, which is what people do. That's a burdensome thing. I love waking up every morning knowing that my definitions of right and wrong are settled for me. My direction in life and the day is settled for me by God's Word. I don't have to make this thing up as I go along. I don't have to carry the weight of the world, not only related to my own life, but what about my wife? What about my children? Your children, as mine are grown now, but those that are in your home, what a terrible thing to wake up and say, all right, this is all dependent upon me. So many people impacted by my wisdom and my philosophy in life, and I've got to come up with my own. No, thank you. But Solomon, if you're going to reject God's philosophy on life, his truth, then I have to come up with my own truth. And that's what he does. And so from chapter 7 almost to the end of the book, he's giving us kind of his revelation of his philosophy, what he's learned through life. And so Grandpa Solomon puts his arm around us, so to speak, and he gives us, takes us on a long walk through the estate, and he pours out his heart 
on his observations in life. And that's what the book is doing. And some of the things that he says are fabulously true, and then other things that he says are complete nonsense, and you have to reject. But that's the truth about everyone's philosophy on life independent of God. Some of it is like, man, you stumbled on something good there, and then something else you say, that's just a bunch of rot and nonsense, but uh, that's the way that it is. So he continues here, chapter 8, verse 10. And in this little section here, he talks about the problem of injustice and evil in life and how he's kind of reconciled it and uh, how he's come to process all of it. He said, then I saw the wicked buried. So the wicked man has died and he's been buried. Uh, who had come and gone from the place of holiness. So even though he was a wicked man, he went to church regularly, regular church goer. And they were forgotten in the city where they had done so. This also is vanity. And this really bugged Solomon. He said, here you've got this guy. He's a wicked man. And he lived wicked, but he went to church every day of his life. And then when they did the funeral service, everybody got up and nobody spoke about his wickedness. All they spoke about was a great guy that he was. You ever been to a funeral like that? Boy, is it tough to bite my tongue. Sometimes in a place like that. Sometimes, you know, part of the service where they talk about uh, the person, the deceased person, and there's uh, personal remembrances, that's called a eulogy. That's a section of the services known as eulogies. And eulogy, the word eulogy means to speak well of. And sometimes people have to work very, very hard to come up with something good to say about uh, the person who has died. And in some respects, I've sat there and watched people just out and out lie, or they have a very selective memory related to it. And I think to myself, well, and Solomon struggles with the same thing here. He thinks, well, if the person didn't have a significant enough concern for his uh, reputation and his legacy to live a godly life, then why should somebody be concerned about his legacy and his reputation after he's dead enough to lie for him. And so Solomon chased, uh, chafed a little bit related to this. Apparently, he'd seen enough of it. He said, because the sentence against an evil work is not executed speedily, therefore the, sons, uh, the heart of the sons of men is fully set uh, in them to do evil. And it's interesting. Some people are evil for years and years and years. They get away with it. I mean, why doesn't God just snuff out the leaders of every drug cartel in the world today? The leaders of every terrorist organization in the world. He could do it in an instant. He holds their breath in his very hand. Why doesn't he do it? See, these are reasons he's God and I'm not God. But these people sometimes hold these positions. They bring people into bondage through their activities. They, uh, worse than the drugs is to take and destroy a human being's mind with an indoctrination toward violence and, and intolerance and these kind of things. And yet they get away with it for years and years. And then people watch them get away with it and they say, there must not be a God. There must not be any judgment related to this. And because judgment isn't meted out by God instantaneously, people begin to feel that, well, 
then evil is not a significant issue to God. Or it really doesn't matter. Um, you, get, you can get away with it. And what people don't realize is that God does not judge all evil in this life. I mean, there is always a judgment that's on evil. But we may not see that judgment. Um, the Bible talks about uh, the life of the wicked. They know no peace, etc. There's an internal price that people pay for living an evil life. It's very destructive. The way of the transgressor is hard, the Bible says. But we may not see them receive God's judgment in this life. But it's wrong to believe that God's judgment won't be meted out in the situation because sometimes he reserves virtually all of it uh, for after this life, the judgment in the life to come. But Solomon, is these are frustrations. These are things that people are processing. They're trying to work through, and sometimes with God, sometimes without God, that these are the explanations. He says, though a sinner does evil a hundred times... And his days are prolonged, yet I surely know that it will be well with those who fear God, who fear before him. Now, he is trying to live life and discover the meaning of life independent of God. But no matter where he turns, he ends up talking about God. Because God's the answer to every problem in life. He's the solution to every problem ultimately in life. And so he looks at this and he sees evil men getting away with evil. And he can't even bite his tongue and not talk about God when he's not supposed to talk about God. And he's going to tell those that are fear God, don't cease Fearing God. Don't lose your fear of God and your respect for God just because of the evil that evil people are getting away with. He can't hold it in. He's got to say it. It's a tremendous psychological study of Solomon uh, through the book of Ecclesiastes. He said, but it will not be well with the wicked, nor will he prolong his days, which are as a shadow because he does not fear before God. Then in verses 14 and 15, he talks about life is unfair. You ever felt like that? You ever felt life is unfair? Why me? Why me? (laughs) Well, we don't do the old upper tooth thing, a little more sophisticated than that, unless you're the pastor of Calvary Chapel Modesto. But we feel this, don't we? He said there's a vanity which occurs on the earth. That there are, and here's the vanity, that there are just men to whom it happens according to the work of the wicked. Things that we think should be reserved for the wicked happen to men and women that are absolutely just and righteous. And you go, why them? Why does this wicked person Enjoy good health and prosperity and family and abundance. And I'm struggling to put food on the table. I'll tell you, we deal with it in life. There's a vanity which occurs on earth. That there are just men 
to whom it happens according to the work of the wicked. Again, there are wicked men to whom it happens according to the work of the righteous, the blessings that only righteous people should experience. They're the daily portions of the wicked. He said, I said that this also is vanity. And so I commended enjoyment. Because a man has nothing better under the sun than to eat, drink, and be merry, for this will remain with him in his labor all the days of his life which God gives him under the sun. He says the world is unfair. Don't try to figure it out. There's no rules for if you live a righteous life, it always translates this way. Or if they live a wicked life, you're going to be judged. It's all up in the air. You can't make sense of it. You just have to accept it and eat and drink and enjoy yourself. Don't take life too seriously. And there's some truth to that. But again, there's always a price that's paid for wickedness. And sometimes the price is deeper and more frightening and more terrible than in a psychological realm, in a mental realm, in a moral realm, in a spiritual realm, in an emotional realm in somebody's life than ever could come against them physically. And again, so often we don't see the price that the wicked pay for their wickedness. And righteousness is always rewarded. Righteousness is always its own reward. If you and I are on our deathbed with a terminal disease and we don't have two quarters to rub together, two quarters to our name, and we lie on that bed and we know that we are right with God and we have, and all of his promises are yea and amen toward us, we are richer and more blessed than anyone else in the whole wide world. But Solomon's processing life independent of God, so he doesn't see it that way. But we need to see it that way. Verse 16, when I applied my heart to know wisdom and to see the business that's done on the earth, even though one sees no sleep day or night, then I saw all the work of God, that a man cannot find out the work that is done under the sun. For though a man labors to discover it, he will not find it. Moreover, though a wise man attempts to know it, he will not be able to find it. And so he says, trying to figure out life, trying to make sense of life and the ways of life independent of God, he said it's just a frustration and all it's going to result in is sleepless nights. And without the realization of the fact that this world is a fallen place, Genesis chapters 1, 2, and 3, and that much of what happens in this life will not be judged in this life, but it will be judged in the life to come. And and without knowing those things, then all of life is a complete mystery. I'll tell you, I wouldn't know what to do. I mean, I got saved in 1980, really walking with the Lord at that particular point. And uh, my life is so dependent upon the Lord for everything in every way, for my next thought, for my next bit of sanity, everything, not just money and food on the table, everything, hope, light, life, 
strength, power, revelation, all these things that come from God. And it's true of you as, as well. And you look at this. Um, imagine waking up in the world today and trying to make sense of this airline being downed over the Ukraine this week. And so many other things that happened this week. And all of it will just simply be, uh, or what's happening on our southern border. Or what's going on in the, the disasters that are going on in Nigeria. The persecution of Christian churches. The rise of Islam. The murder in the name of religion. And, and people ripping off and making small fortunes uh, through a position and through... Um, uh, access while here is this person that breaks their body down to just make a minimum wage and to scrape by and you're trying to figure the whole thing out and to try and figure life out independent of knowing this is a fallen place. It's fallen from what it once was and that much of it isn't going, uh, that things are not going to be made perfect until Christ returns and uh, my, what life will become on the earth at that particular point. But trying to figure out life independent of God's revelation, oh, it would be frustration and it would be uh, emptiness. Uh, chapter 9, he returns, as he has so often in this book, to the theme of death. That's the big, he comes back to death over and over and over again. And that's the issue that the person who is trying to find out and figure out life independent of God, they always come back to death. Even more than food, even more than this, even more than that. Why? Because everybody recognizes that death is an enemy and that nobody has escaped it independent of God. And so this really plagues him. The Bible talks about, the book of Hebrews, about those who live in the bondage to the fear of death. And it's a real fear. And the only people that are released from a fear of death are those who have put their faith in the one who has conquered death. And that is Christ. And he's the only one that's done that. But everybody else, no matter how perky or how this or that or what, everybody recognizes that death is an enemy. Some people more acutely than others. Solomon very acutely. And so he returns to the subject. He said, for I considered all this in my heart so that I could declare it all, that the righteous and the wise and their works are in the hands of God. People know neither love nor hatred by anything they see before them. All things come alike to all. And here he speaks specifically of death. One thing, universal, death and taxes. Ah, but taxes aren't even universal necessarily anymore. There's some tax-free zones uh, in the world. But death is universal. All things come alike to all. Isn't that a perky little subject? Aren't you glad you came tonight? <laughs> One event happens to the righteous and the wicked, to the good, the clean, and the unclean, the good, the bad, the ugly, everybody, to him who sacrifices uh, and him who doesn't sacrifice, to the religious and the non-religious. And as is the good, so is the sinner, he who takes an oath as he who fears an oath. This is an evil in all that is done under the sun, that one thing happens to all, Truly the hearts of the sons of men are full of evil. Madness is in their hearts while they live. And after that, they go to the dead. For to him who is joined to all of the living, there is hope 
For a living dog is better than a dead lion. For the li- It's very graphic, isn't it? Well, you put yourself in that place and you look and you say, all right, here's your choice. Door number one, door number two. They open up door number one and there's a dead lion. King of the beasts. King of the animal kingdom. But it's dead. And then you got this scrawny little ugly dog that they use for commercials for Doritos or Taco Bell or whatever. This scraggly ugly thing and its teeth are all, you know, all over wherever and all. You say, which one do you want to be? I'll take the dog, thank you. Why? Because the dog compares to the lion at all? No, it still has life. It still has life. And as long as there's life, there's hope. And there's that recognition that given a choice and he's, he's all, he's all uh, bummed and depressed as it relates to death. Uh, here, but uh, he says, well, uh, if I'm given a choice between death uh, and, and uh, you know, living the, you know, being the greatest person in the world but dead or being this other thing over here but alive, I'll take life. Then he goes on and he says, for the living know that they will die, but the dead they know nothing. Now, this isn't true. And they have no more reward, for the memory of them is forgotten. Also their love, their hatred, their envy have now perished. In other words, they can never feel those emotions ever again. Nevermore will they have a share in anything done under the sun. And so de- everyone dies and uh, death treats everyone equally. That's, you've got to give death credit. for. It's not a respecter of persons. You give credit where it's due. And uh, without God, there's nothing, he says, after this life, no reward for living a good life, no punishment for living a bad life. And all of this seemed very unfair uh, to Solomon. He feels like there ought to be a reward for doing right and a judgment for doing uh, wrong for something that uh, outlives this life into eternity based upon the quality of life that we've lived in this world. And uh, so he uh, gives his reasons for all his thinking here is that while he, the living know that one day they're going to die, at least they have life now and the dead experience nothing. And that simply uh, isn't true. We think about Jesus and uh, spoke the story concerning Lazarus and the rich man in the book of Luke. And immediately after death, there they were in Abraham's bosom. The Bible says to be absent from the body for the Christian is to be immediately present with the Lord. Uh, For those that have rejected Christ, that is to go into Hades, into a waiting place for the white throne judgment. So death isn't the end uh, of anything. There is no soul sleep and um, there is an eternity on the other side uh, of this life. It isn't to cease to exist. You ever think about heaven? I think about heaven. Uh, fairly often. And uh, you get older, you just start to do that a little bit. And um, But to think about the fact, you know, sometimes we will fight and claw in this life for every 15-minute block that we can extend our life or uh, whatever it might be. And we, Because this life is all we know. And um, as good or as bad as it is, it's at least what we know. And there's a lot of blessings in life, a lot of mountaintop experiences in life, a lot of valleys in life. But the moment our life ends as a Christian, 
and we enter into that heavenly scene, it's infinitely superior. We will enter into the environment that we've been created for. Perfection. Absolute perfection. And that's why the Lord, the Bible talks about the fact that the Lord is present at the uh, the death of his saints, very present uh, with us at that time, and then instantly we are into that scene. The Apostle Paul, he spoke about it in his own letters about the fact that, as he said uh, to the Corinthians, it was 14 years ago, whether in the body or out of the body, I don't know. He repeats that. I mean, he's thinking about heaven, what God did for him. God gave him a vision of heaven or took him up into heaven for a short period of time. And he said, what I heard there, it wouldn't be lawful to try and put it into words. That's interesting to me. He doesn't say, what I saw there. He doesn't even attempt to explain what he saw. He said, I can't even try to explain what I heard in that scene without marring it. Now, heaven is a wonderful place, and uh, there is a life after this one uh, for the uh, beautiful one, for the child of God. In verse 7, he, uh, here he encourages uh, everyone who's reading here, if you're going to live life under the sun, independent of God, then enjoy life uh, to the fullest. I mean, make every occasion uh, in life count. I mean, if this is all there is, then, you know, go for the gusto. And no matter how routine or ordinary the experience is life and life is, you make it as special as you can. And so he says, go and eat your bread with joy. Life is short. Eat the dessert first. He says, and drink your wine with a merry uh, heart, for God has already accepted your works. Let your garments always be white. And so the best clothes that would be worn in those uh, days, white garments were customarily worn at a festival. And so he says, don't be holding on to your clothes in that section of the closet where you got those two or three, or if you're Imelda Marcos, the 600 pairs of shoes or whatever people collect, whatever your closet looks like, those things that we only wear once in a while because we don't want to wear them out. And since we don't wear them out, we own them for 25 years, and they're so badly out of fashion by the time we break them out and use them that everyone in our family is embarrassed to be seen with us. It says, wear your best clothes, not for special occasions, just ordinary times. Eat, enjoy yourself, dress up, come on and and enjoy life. This is all there is. Don't be holding on for some future time when uh, you can be a dead lion. He said, and let your head lack no oil. Take the oil out, take the perfume, slosh it on you. Just stay away from me, by the way. I'm not going to go into that again, you know. My mother, when we were growing up, my mother was... um, In her times, the most famous and um, successful woman gambler in the history of Las Vegas. And she was a mathematical genius. And she could, at that, she could count the cards. She could understand the odds on things. And back in 1950, early 1950s, it was nothing for her to win or to lose $50,000, in a night, nothing. My older sister tells stories about the fact that we would, um, uh, one time they had a thing at the elementary school, 
and there were, you're supposed to bring money for a book club or something. And back in those days, you know, you brought like a nickel to buy five books or something. She just took some money off of the top of the bureau, a stack of it there, walked into the classroom with a $100 bill. They called the police. <laughs> Didn't know where a kid like this is getting a $100 bill in those days. What's going on? My mother would just flush jewelry down the toilet because she had her ups and she had her downs. This is this... The complexity of genius sometimes in people's life and all. And I remember later on in life when that was all in her rearview mirror. And life was hard for my mom, very hard for my mom. But she did come to know the Lord. And so she knew all of this luxury. She knew all of this wealth and all of the finest things in life. And I would look at her later on in life and to know that that was a part of her history. That was something that she knew. And the one thing that she would keep from those days in the house, the only thing that she always insisted on having was a bottle of Chanel number no. 5 in her bedroom. Mom, what is this, the Chanel number no. 5? Oh, Chanel number no. 5. Even to this day, I walk into a store and they've got the cologne and the perfumes and everything. I see the Chanel number no. 5 and I do a little bow, you know, as I go by. It's kind of... An, Remembrance of my mom, Chanel number no. five. No, no fragrance could excel it in my mind. I don't care how much superior it might smell. It's just in, ingrained in me. And she never, ever used that Chanel number no. five. Didn't want to use it up. Solomon would say, slosh it on you. Don't be saving any of those perfumes for special occasions. Go ahead and put it all over yourself when you head to the family barbecue. And everyone will wonder, what's the big get-up? Hey, death is coming. I'm using everything up before it comes. <laughs> Live joyfully with the wife whom you love all the days of your vain life. That's perky, isn't it? Which he has given you under the sun all your days of vanity for all that is your portion in life and in the labor which you perform under the sun. Get married. The sooner the better. Don't miss out on that. There's, you know, it's all the opportunity is going to be gone soon enough. And he says, whatever your hand finds to do it, talks about working, working hard. Do it with all your might, for there's no work or device or knowledge or wisdom in the grave where you are going. This is the last chance, he says, to work hard, to know what it feels like uh, to have worked hard that day and done good that day. He said it's all going to expire. And, of course, independent of God and the truth and the revelation of God, this is where he is. It's a terrible kind of place to, to live, but this is the hope that he has. And then he gets into verse 11 here, and he's talking about the fact that because man doesn't know his time, he doesn't know when death is going to come, uh, he, said there, and he, he says you can't know that because there's no rhyme or reason to it. There's no formula where you look and you say, you know, if you do this and you live this way and you're always nice to other people, you'll never die in a car wreck or you'll never get cancer. Uh, or you'll never have death come in this other way, or if you do, you're just a criminal, terrible kind of person, then death is going to come to you faster than it comes to other people. But we all know the good die young very often, and the wicked die 
very, very old. And so this is the point he's making, is you can't figure any of this out. There's no formula. There's no way to figure it out. And so just enjoy life. He says, I returned and I saw under the sun that the race isn't to the swift. You think it would be to the swift, but it isn't. Nor the battle to the strong, but you think it would be, but it isn't. Nor bread to the wise, nor riches to men of understanding, nor favor to men of skill. But time and chance happens to all of them. There's no rhyme or reason to life, no formula to life. It, it, death just comes and it's all just random chance. It just comes out of, uh, out of uh, nowhere. There's nothing is settled. There's no one in charge of, of all of this. For a man also does not know his time. He's like a fish taken in a cruel net, like birds caught in a snare. And so the sons of men are snared in an evil time when it falls suddenly upon them. And so nothing is sure in life, he says. It seems like everything's based on luck and chance rather than skill and wisdom and righteous living. And because it doesn't appear that there is a rhyme or a reason to any uh, of this, it's all chance and luck. There's nothing you can do to increase your odds on any of all of this. And so enjoy life to the fullest. Uh, In this, he's completely wrong. Because the Bible teaches that he numbers our days. There is a God who is in control of human history. And he is marching human history to its God-appointed end. And we are watching that before our eyes today. I'm on tiptoes. Do I look taller than normal? I am so ready for the return of the Lord. And it's drawing closer by the minute. The rapture of the church. Things are so set in place. It's amazing. And it is these prophecies that are thousands of years old, not only fulfilled before our eyes, but long ago fulfilled and developing before our eyes in ways that I never dreamed I would in my lifetime. And all of it's happening. And the God that is able to uh, lead and sovereignly direct all of human history also is able to number our days and to direct uh, our life as well. Our life is not out of control. Nothing is under the, um, the weight of chance or luck, as Solomon says here. Uh, when each of us goes home to heaven, if we uh, can uh, die before the time of the rapture, it will be because it is time for us to leave this place and to go into this unspeakably better place called heaven. Verse 13, he said, This wisdom I have also seen under the sun, and it seemed great to me. There was a little city with a few men in it, and a great king came against it, besieged it, and built great snares against it, going to destroy the city, overthrow it. Now there was found in it a poor wise man, and he by his wisdom delivered the city. Yet no one remembered after the deliverance, no one remembered the same poor man. And so he watched that, just like we're listening 
to the students related to Mexico. We watch life. Certain lights go on. We see things. We're in a crowd of a hundred people. Something happens. We notice something that maybe two in the hundred notice with us. And they'll notice something we don't. It's just God opening our eyes and our spirits to things, teaching us things that we wouldn't otherwise know. And so Solomon, he's noticing all of this and... uh, He's coming to conclusions about it. But now he's trying to come to conclusions about it and independent of God. So he, then I said, wisdom is better than strength. And he's right about that. Nevertheless, the poor man's wisdom, it's despised. And his words are not heard. Words of the wise spoken quietly should be heard rather than the shout of a ruler of fools. But usually the shout is, is heard and the wisdom of the wise is overlooked. Wisdom is better than weapons of war, but one sinner destroys much good. And so wisdom is better than strength, but it is rarely rewarded in this life. Strength is rewarded in this life. And so the wise poor man, he saves an entire city, and yet there's no long-lasting gratitude for that wisdom. What happens? Because so often... Wisdom's only valued during the crisis. And then once the crisis is over, then the wisdom and the wise are just disregarded as nothing. Now it's all power again and uh, until the next crisis. And it's just the way that it goes in the world. In chapter 10, he continues to give these kind of assorted proverbs that make up his philosophy in life. He said... And the first three verses, he's giving his thoughts on foolishness or uh, foolish behavior. He said, dead flies putrefy the perfumer's ointment and cause it to give off a foul odor. And so does a little folly to one respected for wisdom and honor. Now, in our country, most perfumes come in a bottle and they come in liquid form, don't they? But in the ancient world, they were almost always put in the form of an oil or in the form of a balm so that they wouldn't evaporate in the heat of the Middle East. And they would then take that ointment of that balm and they would put it on themselves or put it into their hair. And uh, to have an ointment in those days, an ointment, a perfumed ointment, was outrageously expensive. We're talking about something that is very very, very uh, valuable. Now, for our purposes, since we don't really have, you know, valuable perfumed ointments that come in the form of an ointment, let's just uh, use a picture in our minds that most of us, I think, at least in my generation, have experienced at one time or another. Just picture in your mind a jar of Pond's cold cream or cleansing cream. How many of you know what that is? Just a quick show of hands. How many of you don't know what a, a... little jar of Pond's um, cold cream is. Okay. Everyone under the age of 16 and male. That's great. That's just how it should be. So you take the jar off of the lid of um, uh, this cold cream and you open it up and there's a half a dozen dead flies. Somehow it was dark, you put the lid on, you trapped them in it, closed the thing up, and they died in there, and then they rotted in there. And now, you know, all of it, it now the whole, it stinketh. The <laughs> ointment stinks now. 
and you open that up, and now here's the smell and all. Well, what are you going to do with that? You're certainly not going to put that on your face. I mean, you're completely grossed out by all of that. And here is something that's very, very valuable. Consider it to be a valuable ointment, even more valuable than Pond's cold cream. And yet, you would, it gets thrown away. You'd never dream of using it. It's completely ruined. What? By the flies. And Solomon is saying this is a picture of what little bits of folly do in the life of a person who is recognized and, and respected for wisdom and for honor. And so it speaks to us in a couple of ways. It speaks of the fact that in our lives as Christians, because we want to be respected for wisdom and honor, for the glory of the Lord, And so it speaks about the fact that we never want to um, engage in any act of folly or foolishness that will forever mar our Christian witness. And so sometimes there's this, you know, single great sin that someone might commit, say in a position of leadership in a church or something like that, that is like, okay, that's... That's been spoiled. Nobody can look at the perfume anymore. Nobody can ever appreciate the value of what God built into that person's life because now all they can think about is the dead flies. And all of this work and effort and time and value that God has poured into a human life now It's forever marred. But it doesn't just speak about that one big event that can sometimes do that one big foolish thing that we all have to be careful of related to our Christian witness. But it can also speak of some mark of carnality, some carnal quirk that is a part of our life as Christians, that all people can do is just notice that. And because of that quirk, and sometimes it can be an untamed tongue where somebody's just always slandering or they're always gossiping or it can be bitterness or it can be unforgiveness. It can be a lot of different things that are in our lives or just being uh, silly, no sobriety of mind, just uh, being a, a silly little person when what um, that... That kind of thing that we allow in our life, that kind of a quirk or fleshly trait to continue in our life, and it's such a dominant trait. It's kind of like if somebody has a tick. If you have a tick, I'm not putting you down. But, you know, you have somebody that's just like got a tick kind of a thing, and you leave them, and you can hardly remember the conversation you had because of the tick. Well, we can have moral and spiritual folly ticks in our life where people walk away from us and they never have noticed anything of what God has built into our lives in terms of Christ-likeness and character and the beauty. All they notice is that goofy thing that we will not recognize in our life and be willing to get rid of so that it ceases to be a distraction in terms of our effectiveness for Christ. And so it's true. And it's something we all need to be aware of in our lives and to allow the Holy Spirit and boy is he good at it because we can be blind to it and be blind to everything in our lives and so the word of God will sometimes put its finger upon that and sometimes um, the Holy Spirit will put his finger on some area 
of our life. And you know what? where it gets really dangerous today is sometimes it's not an out-and-out sin. It's just foolishness for someone who wants to be respected and honored. Yes, you have the freedom to do that, but we won't have the respect that God wants our life to have and as a result, the influence for the kingdom of God that he wants us to have. And I'll tell you, I don't like it, and I've mentioned it in recent months two or three times, but I'll continue to mention it as long as it's on my heart. I don't like how much of Christianity's focus right now in the United States is on our liberties. And that this, for many, many people, many Christians, and many leaders, is as high as they want to grow. It's like they don't want to to enter into the kind of place of godly character in the depth of relationship with God and what's learned from God only when we're willing to give up our liberties to move into deep spirituality with God if he calls us to do that and people are holding on to their liberties things that are yes they're lawful but they're foolish for a person who has the kind of call upon their life that you have on your life And for the Holy Spirit to speak to us about those things and to realize that's a dead fly in the apothecary. That's a dead fly in the anointment. And it will ruin my effectiveness if I'm not willing to turn away uh, from it. And I think it's a very, very good proverb, very important proverb for um, being a Christian in the United States of America today. I, I bet I wasn't um, even six months old in the Lord. And I mean, you think about all of the verses in the Bible that, the, that God could speak to you, you know, all of the promises he could speak to a person as a new Christian and all. He gave me that verse. He gave me several other verses too, but this was like a weird one. I said, what in the world is a, an apothecary? And what are dead flies doing in it? But he did know that I did want to make a difference for the kingdom of God. And I'm not saying that I'm respected for wisdom or for honor, but it's something that I desire my life to be influential in that way. And I remember the Lord just spoke to my heart from this passage, you be careful about those Things, And I've tried to be. I haven't always been successful. And I won't always be successful. But I don't want there to be something in my life where people walk away and say, Yeah, you know, I appreciate his walk with the Lord, but you know, that thing just kills all of it. And that's something that all of us want to be aware of in our Christian lives and in our Ministries. We'll stop there tonight. I'd like the worship team to come forward and lead us in at least one worship song before we close this evening just to allow some of the things we've looked at, such a diverse cross-section of uh, things tonight, 
and to allow the Lord just to put any kind of finishing touches He wants to put upon our heart tonight related to what we've seen. And maybe nothing in terms of like conviction or uh, uh, even a, a something specifically encouraging from the passage, but just to be able to stop and breathe in and breathe out and say, Lord, thank you so much for delivering me from my own philosophy and from the land of emptiness and frustration and into the beauty and the fullness of a life that is mine because of Christ. Well, let's give him praise now as we close our evening tonight.